Thanks for the good singing. We uh, come in our study of the Ten Commandments to number 10. The uh, Tenth Commandment, and I'd like to read to you once again from the beginning as we would uh, consider the whole along with the lawgiver this morning. Here from Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. Let us pray. Even so, Father, you gave the command to this people of old as they stood a free people before the mountain and trembled. But you had promised them that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to you, and that they should enjoy their freedom if they should keep this word. So we, who likewise have been set free by the greater freedom in Christ, would learn these words, that we might inscribe them upon our very hearts and learn how best to live to your glory and our good, which we trust the same thing. Amen. Well, Americans are the unhappiest that they have ever been, UN report finds. That was the headline, by the way, back in 2019, before anybody ever heard of coronavirus. But both before and since, a rash of surveys analyzing more than 50 years of data have highlighted the sad state of happiness in our country. Now, everywhere and always, human life is characterized or plagued with discontentment. But the irony is that the more that we have gained, especially in recent decades, the the less satisfied we've become, like a spoiled child. Well, if money could buy happiness, this would obviously be the happiest nation in the world. But we're living in what some people have called a happiness paradox. 
we, we seek more happiness through, the, through possessions or even the spouses of others, the Tenth Commandment points out, and all the while we actually get less. There's a recent book called The High Price of Materialism that summarizes in big words, you'll, you'll forgive me, this is a scholarly journal, you know, the studies document that strong materialistic values are associated with a pervasive undermining of people's well-being, from low life satisfaction and happiness to depression and anxiety to physical problems such as headaches and to personality disorders, narcissism, and antisocial behavior. Well, you don't need to buy that book when you've already got this book. Christ certainly warned us about the devastating results of having full coffers and an empty soul. Or certainly King Solomon had something to teach us. He had everything that the world could possibly give. Wives and servants and gardens and houses and much gold and silver. If any individual could ever find happiness from such things, it was Solomon. In fact, he said... Ecclesiastes, he wrote, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I didn't withhold from my heart any pleasure. Yet in spite of all that he had, Solomon concluded, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is vanity. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Well, I wish the scholarly journals would just read Solomon. It would save him a lot of time and money. Somebody once described these Ten Commandments as the tender commandments because in them God has given his children a prescription for true satisfaction and joy. And it's like the words of a father to a son. In fact, he, he says in that very chapter right before, he says, you know how I bore you on eagle's wings. And the reference is like a, like a mother eagle that uh, takes his, its uh, little child out and she uh, teaches it to fly, lets it go, and uh, the bird doesn't know what he's doing, flaps crazily and wildly, but of course the, the, the mother bears up the child on her wings to, to do it again. Uh, until the little eaglet is strong and can fly. Well, this Ten Commandment uh, prescription for true satisfaction gives us wings to fly if we could see. This last commandment takes aim especially at our inner life, our joy and satisfaction like no other does. Let's consider this Tenth Commandment today. Thou shalt not covet. The word covet is not in the working vocabulary of most people today. And worse, the very concept is not often in our mind. We don't talk about coveting, and we don't usually even think about it. In fact, many people don't even realize coveting is a sin, or if they do, maybe it's like going 57 miles an hour in a 55-mile-per-hour zone. Some translations for children will use the word greed, but the Tenth Commandment reminds us the problem isn't simply materialism, because we could just as well covet the spouses of others, or anything else that is thy neighbor's for that matter. In the Bible, it can have the sense of lust rather than greed, so the word has some flexibility, just so you know. 
but I will give you the excellent summary, once again, of our church's shorter catechism. What's required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. And what's forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbors, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Well, as written, this Tenth Commandment is the most demanding of the ten. Uh, the, The other nine make us responsible explicitly for our actions. This one explicitly makes us responsibility for our attitudes, our desires. Uh, It makes us responsible for the direction and discipline of our thoughts and feelings. And here is the law that gets us down into the bottom of our hearts, down to our motivations. Now, other commandments do start with outward actions, and then they are applied to our words and our hearts. But this commandment begins where the others end. It begins with the heart. It begins not with what we do or even what we say, but with the longings and motivations buried deep within us. Covetousness is ultimately being dissatisfied with what God has given us. It's rejecting, therefore, that verse, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for our good. Covetousness, Paul reminds us, therefore, is a form of idolatry. It's desiring and loving and seeking to find our meaning and satisfaction and purpose in life and joy somewhere else rather than God. And therefore, everywhere in the teaching of Jesus, covetousness, especially the love of money, is, ex- is exposed as an obstacle to faith itself and goodness and as a sinful distraction from the greater issues of life. So covetousness can have a devastating and distorting effect on the soul. It leads us to set our hearts on this world and to lay up treasure, not in heaven, but on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It brings us to love and serve the creation rather than the creator. And so Paul speaks in the passage I just referred to earlier in Romans 1 of the root sin that has brought upon us all other ungodliness and unrighteousness. They neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks. As soon as we turn from God, are unthankful for what he's given, we have begun to covet, and our heart departs from the living God. Well, it would be bad enough, of course, if this just stayed in the heart, but it doesn't often stop there, does it? No, we want to have what we desire. So that's why we steal. That's why we commit adultery. That's why people will not perhaps support their parents or break the Sabbath. Once you start desiring what the Lord has not given to you, there is not an end until you have the object of your desire too often. Now, the Tenth Commandment asks us the question that Jesus asked, what will it profit a man if he gain the world, the whole world, but then loses his soul? The Bible is full of accounts of people whose souls are destroyed through this commandment. Think of the conversation our Lord had with that rich young ruler in which he refused to follow Jesus because his heart had a greater attraction attraction to his wealth. 
or the Lord's parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Covetousness concentrates our attention on the present and beguiles us with the creature so that the creator recedes from view. There was one time Jesus was teaching outside and his teaching was interrupted. Somebody from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for, listen to this, one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. The Tenth Commandment, if it says anything to us today, it says that we must begin to master our desires and set them on the real issues of life. If not, those desires will surely master us. It warns us to put chains on our appetite, or it will put chains upon us. To all that we covet, we become enslaved, and so it raises our sights. Jesus has given this commandment to those uh, who, uh, sorry, the, the, the Lord gave his commandment to those whom he had redeemed, that we might be a, a people of liberty, truly set free in Christ, before I give you some practical counsel about becoming more satisfied, more thankful, more joyful people, I would, as I've been doing in this series, like us to consider how this commandment collides with the prevailing lies of our culture. This checking the moral compass makes us realize just how far off the direction of this world is. I was amazed this week to come across Alexis de Tocqueville's nearly 200-year-old observation that he made when he visited this young country years ago. He wrote, in America, I have seen the freest and best educated of men in circumstances the happiest to be found in the world. Yet it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow, and they seemed serious and almost sad, even in their pleasures. Well, what was the reason that he gave for such a report? De Tocqueville wrote that Americans, quote, never stop thinking about the good things they have not got. I thought, well, things haven't changed much in 200 years, although if it was true then, it's doubly true now. I mentioned some of that research at the beginning over the last three decades, Per capita consumption has risen 62% in this country. We, we're, we just have more and more. Credit card debt has reached record highs, and living well beyond our means is more and more common, so that, so that more people in this country have declared bankruptcy now than graduated from college, writes Hammerslaw in Dematerializing, Taming the Power of Possessions. I find that astonishing. Americans have more and more, but across such a wide range of indicators of happiness, we're enjoying less and less. One article in The American Psychologist also summarizes our becoming much better off over the last six decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. Forgive again the big words, but simply to say that the experience that you're having, it's not just you. Top researchers and top journals wring their hands and they say, what's, what's becoming of America? 
Well, it's one of our great national myths that we can be happier if only we have a little bit more. America has an advertising culture, and what is the job of advertising but to create in you discontentment? They're getting better and better at their job. Our multi-billion dollar advertising industry is extremely adept at exploiting our natural folly, and they're getting better and bolder every year. They are masters at making us covetous and discontented people. All new, faster, cleaner, brighter, instant credit, no down payment, deferred payment, no interest for six months. Every year, more and more ideas about how you can become more and more dissatisfied until you have what they can give you. China got some American consultants some years ago to help increase revenue in their markets. First thing they saw when they arrived was that everybody in the market had the rice right out front. Well, they said that's the, that's the uh, first thing you need to change. Why? They, the shop owners asked. Everybody needs rice. Exactly, they said. Now people should have to go all the way back past all the other things that you want to sell in order to get the rice. I mean, did you ever wonder why Walmart puts the milk in the back corner of the store? I mean, don't you think that they know that the number one thing that people run out to get in the store is milk? No, they have actually built the store. That is to say, your world is literally constructed to make you discontent. That even if you came in only desiring milk, you would leave discontent until you got something else that was a good deal. A few everyday examples. But the point is that America is constructed. Our world is literally designed and built to make you discontent. And even if we want contentment, our society doesn't want us to have it. It would collapse. The society would rather promise us contentment and promise us that if we can get it by buying what they're selling, then we'll finally be happy. But they don't deliver, so we have to keep buying. It's like somebody who doesn't understand that, no, if you're stuck on a desert island, drinking the salt water will only quench your throat for a moment, but leave you more thirsty. Well, as Americans, in every area of life, we are seeking, even demanding, happiness, contentment from our circumstances. Oh, now if we're American Christians, what do we do? Then we're very spiritual. We say, oh God, fix my circumstances. Oh God, I'm trusting you to fix them. And so prosperity theology has its origin right here in the good old U.S. One of my favorite authors, Sinclair Ferguson, wrote this. Contentment means being at ease with God's provision for our lives. This, however, does not come easily to us. It may come only after prolonged battles between our own will for our lives and the will of our Heavenly Father. Spiritual contentment is rooted and based on an inward relationship to God and not on external circumstances. We at least think this way. Lord, if I only had this or lived there, or had that gift, or a little more money, you name it. 
then I would be content. But, listen, this is not contentment minus some small details. It is discontentment tantamount to covetousness. True contentment is not the same thing as getting whatever we want. It is submitting to the Lord's will and learning to desire what He does. Only then will we discover that His will is good, perfect, and acceptable. And so he says, as Christians, we must maintain this crucial distinction. A distinction between being contented by the world, which we can never be, and being contented in the world, which by God's grace we should be. That's the truth of the matter. And what benefits would be ours if we just obeyed this 10th commandment? If we adopted a covet-free lifestyle, we would become more happy and thankful with what we have. Discontentment would not hound our life. We would have more time and resources and desire to help others succeed. We would take much more pleasure in their success. The things that we have would mean more, and we would not only appreciate what we have, we would appreciate God more for giving us these things. We would be more debt-free. We would have less stress and worry. We would become satisfied, thankful, and generous. You say, oh, how can we get there? Well, Paul wrote these words from prison. Perhaps you know these words. I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I've learned how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so here is the, the key, the answer to our culture's dilemma. Uh, okay, if you hit the lottery and it was just a day until you collected, just waiting for Monday to come along, you wouldn't be worried about any lack you had today, would you? Well, in a far greater way, consider what you have already received in Christ and how you have become heirs of a kingdom in glory. And the Lord himself is with us. What have we received in him? There's a song in the old musical Porgy and Bess, sung by an eccentric and very poor, but very alive character, a very attractive character. And the one thing he has is the secret of contentment from covetousness. He sings, I got plenty of nothing, and nothing's plenty for me. I got no car, got no mule, I got no misery. Folks with plenty of plenty, they got a lock on the door, afraid somebody's going to rob them while they're out making more. What for? I got plenty of nothing, and nothing's got plenty for me. I got my gal, got my song, got heaven the whole day long. Got my gal, got my Lord, got my song. The character challenges the American lie. Americans don't need more to be thankful for. They need someone to be thankful to. 
Remember the context of these commandments again, given to a people who have been redeemed and set free from bondage, who are, about, who, are, who are going to a place where they are going to be exceedingly blessed, right? A rich and beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. These commandments are to keep them free. So let's conclude today by thinking about how we can begin to learn this true contentment now. If we're seeking to find our satisfaction in the treasures of earth, then, well, as Lewis put it, we're far too easily pleased. We've set our sights way too low. Contentment is being satisfied in God, the maker of all things, rather than in some measly circumstances. We read in Hebrews 13, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Put things in perspective. We need, therefore, to reject this American lie that true contentment can come from the store God created the world for us to enjoy, but never to satisfy us. Enjoy, yes. Satisfy, no. Or again, as Ferguson put it, as Christians, we must maintain this crucial distinction between being contented by the world, which we can never be, and being contented in the world, which by God's grace we should be. That's the secret. Contentment comes from having satisfaction in God, who's also promised to work all things together for your good, the good of the one who is called according to his purpose. Jonathan Edwards has a wonderful sermon called, God, the Best Portion of the Christian, based on Psalm 73, which I prayed earlier, Whom have I in heaven but you? And Who do I desire on earth besides you? Well, he says in the sermon, here we may learn that whatever changes a godly man passes through, he's happy because God, who is unchangeable, is his chosen portion. Though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many things, yea, of all his temporal enjoyments, yes, Yet God, whom he prefers before all things, still remains and cannot be lost. His chosen portion, on which he builds as his main foundation for happiness, is above the world and above all changes. And when he goes into another world, still he's happy because his portion still remains. How great is the happiness of those who have chosen the fountain of all good, who prefer him before all things in heaven and earth, who can never be deprived of him to all eternity. Speaking to a friend, and he was telling me about just his struggles with discouragement, depression, and the other low things of the, of the soul. And I, I asked, um, I thought about myself from time to time, I asked him, I said, well, look, if, if you could trade places with somebody who doesn't have any knowledge of God or Christ, somebody without God and without hope in the world, would you trade places? He says, well, no, absolutely not. He said, well, you just need to realize how much you already have, how much your life is already so much richer, and begin to build on that foundation. Contentment is not a passive state of mind where we just accept whatever comes into our life like good Buddhists. It's an active state of mind where we choose to see our circumstances in our lives as God's work through which he fulfills his purpose to bring us growth and grace now and in the future, and that we are not victims 
and that we must get rid of the victim mentality. What has come to us has come through God's fatherly hand. And he has higher purposes to fulfill in us than these things can supply. Unexpectedly, I think, Christian counselors will tell you that contentment for a Christian is often gained in the experience, in the midst of trial. Uh, One of them I read says, the goal is not necessarily removal of your problem. Rather, it is that you experience God in a deeper way in the midst of your struggle and grow to be more in the image of Christ. Sorry, People come to him because they're in deep struggles, uh, anxieties, confusion, depression. The goal is not necessarily the removal of the problem. It is to experience God in a deeper way and to grow in the image of Christ. Contentment can be found in God, but sometimes we do have to be driven to him through unsatisfying life circumstances and tragic lessons. Or another example, many years ago, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a famous book with a great title, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He called it a a jewel, something very precious, very, very beautiful. Contentment is a jewel, but he says it's a rare jewel, even among Christians, how rare it is and how important. The devil, Burroughs writes, loves to fish in troubled waters. When we are lacking this contentment in God, we are very vulnerable. When we are seeking to solve our surface problems without recognizing the basic discontentment in our hearts, even if we experience short-term improvement, ultimately such things will only feed covetousness, waiting for more and more of what the Lord has not given. Discontentment is ultimately, therefore, a reflection not of our circumstances, but of our hearts. And the world likes it that way. But the world and all that is in it is passing away. And if you are seeking contentment from such things, I hope that you can see some of the wisdom of this commandment that you're going to be doomed to failure and frustration. It is taking away your happiness, and that is a great sin. Such things pass away. Marriage passes away. Houses pass away. Servants pass away. Why are we so intent on trying to find satisfaction in things that are not going to, not going to last? The creation has so many good things in it. But these things are to bring us in love and thanksgiving to the one who made them all. And if you are reconciled to God in Christ... That is what Paul called the secret of contentment. Then you can be abased and abound. You can be full or empty. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Rich you are. Lotteries often don't please the people who win them, sadly. All who come to God in Christ find abundance of life 
life that is truly to be called life, life that lasts to eternity. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would begin to begin to give us a true satisfaction of soul, contentment of heart, thankfulness of all that is within us, in yourself. O Lord Jesus, as you have come to redeem us, to bring up this dust of the earth from this sad condition of fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind as children of wrath, and to reconcile us to your God and Father. Oh, may you point us again to him. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bear in every heart in which you dwell more of this true fruit of contentment, satisfaction, joy in the Lord, and that that would be our strength. We pray for that song, that unusual song, Got My Girl, Got My Lord, Got My Song. We pray that we too would be able to recognize the things that are truly valuable and rejoice in them. We pray for anyone who does not know you today, who's, who's far, who's discouraged, dissatisfied, who has been more and more distracted and yet has found less and less of what he or she is looking for. We pray that this would be a day of great riches, of great joy, that such people would be able to receive the love of God in Christ Jesus that today would be a day of salvation, that you would bring them to your eternal home.